All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to today's episode. Uh, we're going to focus on housing and education. Uh, and we have some really interesting stuff to talk about. And it's timely. Uh, right now, kids are headed back to school. Uh, and as we've talked about on this podcast before, and, uh, you know, and we'll do it again today from a different angle, uh, it's really impossible to separate the housing crisis uh, from the inequities of the education system. Um, you know, housing unaffordability means that parents have less disposable income to invest in kids' extracurricular activities and learning experiences outside of school. Uh, it also means housing instability, bouncing around from apartment to apartment, which means bouncing around from school to school, new teachers, new curriculum. Uh, it means getting evicted. It means uh, potentially experiencing homelessness, all of which creates toxic stress that kids bring into the classroom. Uh, housing segregation along race and class means school segregation along race and class. Uh, you could look at the funding piece, right? Schools are funded primarily through local property taxes, which means that housing patterns dictate the kinds of resources that schools have available. So the connections are deep, they're profound, they're complex, but we have uh, two very smart people here today to talk about. It. Uh, so we have uh, Dr. Stefan Lollinger, who's the director of the Bridges Collaborative. Uh, and the Bridges Collaborative is an initiative of the Century Foundation, and it really focuses on advancing racial and socioeconomic uh, integration in schools across the country. Uh, we'll talk more about it as, as we go, but uh, Stefan has a really uh, interesting background uh, prior to his work at the Bridges Collaborative. He previously worked as a special assistant to Chancellor Richard Carranza in the New York City Department of Education, worked on uh, policy and strategy there, earned his doctorate from Harvard. Uh, and then prior to grad school, he led the Langston Hughes Academy, which is a pre-K through eight uh, open enrollment school in the recovery school district in, in post-Katrina, New Orleans, where he was principal, assistant principal, and a teacher for nine years. Um, and of course, our, you know, our thoughts are with the greater New Orleans area, of course, and, and many others across the country as they 
you know, recover from yet another uh, devastating hurricane. So uh, the other interesting tidbit about Stefan is that this work is in the genes. It's in his blood. Uh, his grandfather is Louis Redding, uh, which uh, legendary uh, civil rights attorney. His grandpa was actually the first African-American to be admitted to the Delaware bar. Uh, and he was part of the NAACP legal team that challenged uh, school segregation in Brown versus Board uh, in front of the Supreme Court. So uh, Stefan carries the, the family torch well. Uh, and we also have uh, Sam Adams, who's an associate and ongoing contributor for the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. He's recently authored a, an issue brief for us that lays out a lot of these dynamics between housing and education. Sam started as a a summer associate with us while he was in grad school at the University of Chicago. So he's had the uh, the unfortunate experience of working with me over the past many months. <laughs> and apparently he's a glutton for punishment because he keeps uh, he keeps doing work for us. Um, his, uh, his full-time job is he's an education programs manager at the Come to Believe Foundation, which is a really cool organization uh, working to scale uh, kind of an innovative two-year college model for low-income students who are, as we know, often underrepresented at the most selective universities. Um, and Sam started his career as a teacher and administrator, uh, focusing on college readiness and family engagement in Detroit. Uh, so Stefan, Sam, welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here, Mike. Really excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's do the uh, first question. We'll, we'll make it for everybody. And maybe I'll add my two cents here too, because I can kind of, uh, I can kind of fit into this. I think we have, uh, Three guys here on the podcast who got us uh, in the education world and, and awakened to the, the housing world. So um, I guess we'll, we'll start with Stefan, but just, you know, as a former uh, educator, I mean, what, what kind of drew your attention to housing as, you know, an important lever in terms of improving educational outcomes? It's a great question, Mike. I mean, it's, it's the question um, um, as we talk about the link between housing and education here. I mean, at the end of the day, the way that we have set up uh, where kids go to school in this country, um, which is largely based on where they live, has necessitated uh, that educators take an interest in housing policy because um, everything from which kids attend the school to how the school is funded to where the school is located and what kinds of resources the school gets, all of those things, as we'll see and as we'll talk about in the next hour, are really, really tightly linked uh, with um, where people live and the housing uh, around a particular school. So um, for me, it was, it was really out of necessity. I was passionate about education, loved being a teacher, loved being a school leader. And it just it became very, very clear for me um, that the things that I care most about, advancing equity for kids, were not going to be possible absent um, considering and collaborating with and working very closely with folks in the housing sector. Uh, so, so that's, that's at the root of it for me. Yeah. Sam. Yeah. I think for me as a teacher, I mean, uh, being, you know, in the classroom every day, you begin to realize the way that that housing plays out kind of in very concrete ways every day, whether it's, you know, absences that are associated with, uh, you know, housing challenges or students moving in and out of the classroom. Um, these transfers between schools that are necessitated by housing um, or even, you know, high school students that are forced to work and those job responsibilities compete with their academic responsibilities um, because they, you know, they need to contribute to, to the rent, things like that. Um, and then, you know, going back to graduate school and thinking about, you know, the uh, policy, education policy from, from a more, you know, bird's eye view, you realize that um, these systems are intricately linked and it's not just 
these, you know, individual day-to-day things, it's also the systems that, that set up, you know, students for success. Um, and those are really intricately linked. Um, and so I think that uh, that's what drew me to the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign in the first place, was recognizing that you can't talk about one without the other. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, for me, I mean, I, I started professional life in the military, and then I, and then I went into education. And so I kind of went into education as sort of a, a bit of a, a Kool-Aid reformer, I guess you, you could say, that like all, all the solutions to all the education problems exist within the school walls, and we just need, you know, better instruction and high expectations, and that, that, that'll do it. Um, and then I got into the education world and I started to realize, well, there's, there's more complexities than, than that. Um, and I think my, my big awakening to housing was I was, uh, in the Dallas school system as the new uh, chief of innovation. And it was like day one or two. Um, and I was sitting down with John DeLander, who was the longtime, uh, communications chief for the district. I think he's since left, um, wonderful guy. And I'm just like trying to get a lay of the land. It was a really raucous time in the district. There was a lot of atten- a lot of tension going on, and so I was just like trying not to, you know, step and poop on my, on my first week. Um, and so John was like the guy to to talk to, and we sat down um, in front of a big map of the district, and there was this big donut hole uh, in the middle of the district. And I wish this is one of the limitations of a podcast, and I wish our listeners could see a picture of it. But within the Dallas school district, there's a smaller separate school system like fully contained within the boundaries of the Dallas school district. It, it literally is a donut hole. And I asked John, like, what is, why is that part shaded out? Like what's, what's the empty donut hole? And John said, Oh, that's Highland park independent school district, a separate school system in the middle of this other school system. And then of course you look at the demographics and Dallas is, you know, over 90% of kids living in poverty uh, over 90% kids of color and Highland Park is like 0% poverty and very, very heavily white. And I just kind of saw this map and realized that the unbelievable uh, segregation that still exists within the system. And it's really enabled by largely by housing patterns, right? Because our uh, neighborhoods uh, are so segregated, you can very easily draw, um, you know, defensible school attendance boundaries along these neighborhood lines and bam, you cement school segregation. You can literally ensure through housing policy that rich kids don't go to school with poor kids and poor kids don't go to school with rich kids. And this seemed, at least to me, it still seems to me this way, that this is incredibly unhealthy for the body politic, right? Uh, There's that famous quote from Thurgood Marshall of, if if our children can't learn together, there's little hope that they'll be able to learn to live together. Um, And then, you know, like Sam talked about, I, I dove into the bigger research and concluded that, man, you know, if, if you're an education advocate, you're you're a housing advocate, whether you like it or not. You, you just can't stay silent on on matters of housing policy because it's it's impacting uh, kids. So, kind of with that with that lens for uh, the research, I want to uh, ask Sam. Um, you know, along with this podcast, we're releasing this issue brief that you authored. So, it might be a good time to just kind of go through uh, and and talk about kind of what the research does tell us about the connections between housing and education. And a lot of this you, you threw into that issue brief, which, which I'd urge folks to check out. So kind of talk us through, what, what do we know through the, the literature here? Sure, so I, as, we've, uh, as we've mentioned so far in this discussion, I think the, the links are numerous. Um, and when we looked at the research, we really broke it down into three big buckets. So the first one is that, you know, having a stable, affordable home in good condition is, an, is a critical foundation for learning. If you don't have that to rely on, you're just going in at a disadvantage. It undermines all of the things that even the, the most effective teachers can do. So that's one. 
The second one is in part because of the connection between property taxes and school funding that Mike mentioned. Uh, where you live is just a, a very strong predictor of the quality of your school. Um, and uh, households with low incomes just don't have the same autonomy. They don't have the same agency to determine which schools that they want their children to go to as more affluent parents do. And the third one is that, as, as many of us know, post-secondary credentials are really important in the 21st century in this modern economy. And at the very time in which students are, are going off and trying to earn these credentials, whether it's a certificate or an associate or, or a bachelor's degree, they're the students with the lowest incomes, the ones that it's most important that earn these credentials are often undermined by housing insecurity. And so that's a really important angle that's often under discussed. Now, each of these three, the link is very strong, but it's also multidimensional and complex. And so it's not just education and housing, it's also healthcare, it's also the economy, it's also you know um, all these different connections, nutrition, uh, you know, criminal justice, all of these different things that, that kind of mediate this connection. So I'll give you a few examples. As it relates to housing quality, you know, we know that public housing in this, in the United States has been, the repairs have been underfunded for decades. Environmental toxins that are present in homes uh, undermine the physical health of students. And there's a clear link between that physical health and their attendance and therefore their performance in school. In terms of access, you know, housing mobility, residential mobility, moving to these lower poverty neighborhoods has demonstrated effects on adults' mental health. And there's a link between adult mental health and students' performance in school. And then finally, another example I'll provide in terms of post-secondary access, we know that there's a strong link between housing security and food security, between having, you know, rent, not being rent burdened and having enough food on the table and so it's been shown that students that have to face food insecurity in college are less likely to be successful, lower grades, and less likely to complete their degree. And again, all of these things, are it's not just a simple cause and effect. They medi they're mediated by all these different dimensions of life. So housing and education inextricably linked and, and mediated by all of these different really important factors. Yeah, and, and so many of these studies go back ways, right? I mean, like this isn't a new, this isn't a new thing in the literature. It goes back many, many years. We've known this for a while, which I think, at least for me, frustrates me even more because like it's, it's been prolonged inaction, right, on, on many of these issues. And we've, we've just known it um, for so long. So, Stefan, what's, what's your take on all this? I mean, talk to us kind of about, um, you know, the relationship between housing and school quality and kind of how you see the, the linkages of these issues. Absolutely. I mean, I'll pick up where you left off, Mike, which is I would characterize it not just as prolonged inaction, but for much of our history as a country, it was actually very deliberate action to keep people uh, separate from one another, particularly in housing policy. And I think that is, it's so important. The historical element is so important because sometimes folks just want to start with where we are and make assumptions about how we got to where we are. And it's just, it makes no sense absent the historical context. So for most of our um, uh, history in the 19th and 20th centuries, very, through very deliberate governmental action at all layers, local, state, and federal, um, we have essentially, uh, our, our government has essentially sanctioned residential segregation in the South and in the North, not just a Southern phenomenon, not just because of Jim Crow, in the South and in the North. And 
it hasn't always been the case in this country that where you live dictates where you go to school because before 1954, segregation in public schools was legal. And what you saw a lot of was black students having to go further distances than where they lived because they weren't allowed to attend white schools. You right. saw white students getting bused further distances because perhaps the nearest school to them was a black school. Yeah. And so then with Brown in 1954, and we know that it took many, many years to implement, um, but with Brown in 1954, then you start to see a real outcry for the concept of the neighborhood school uh, because um, then you could make the case for uh, segregation without calling it segregation. Um, you see white flight out of urban areas where folks are most likely to, to live near each other and where uh, you know integration could actually theoretically have worked in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, and desegregation actually did work, and we can talk about that um, in a little bit. But the bottom line here is that in this country now, um, we have extreme residential segregation, greatly along lines of income. And we'll talk a little bit about income and race uh, in, in a little bit. But um, we have extreme residential segregation. And the way most of our school districts are set up is that the school district is funded uh, based on the property taxes of a particular area. And in places where, um, in places where the residential segregation just sort of uh, enables very clear school boundaries that perpetuate segregation, um, uh, we see these patterns sort of reproduced where you have high-income residents able to you know, give more money to the local public school than low-income residents. But in places where there's more sort of um, diversity residentially, we also see the phenomenon of gerrymandered school districts where you have certain neighborhoods cut out of districts to exclude certain people and include other people. But at the end of the day, you know, if in this country we continue to fund schools primarily based on uh, the property values of the locality, then we're going to continue to see inequality in the way that we fund our schools. Because... The amount that the federal government ships in is about 10% um, of all expenditures in education. States, it varies tremendously. And, you know, states have done some innovative things with playing with formulas. But at the end of the day, if that's the primary mechanism to fund our schools, we're going to continue to see this inequality. The other thing that's worth mentioning is um, about 75% of all students in the United States, school-age students in the United States, attend school based on where they live. So this is uh, you know, this includes private schools, charter schools, 75% of all students attend school based on where they live. Um, and if where they live is segregated, then where they go to school is going to be segregated. That's just sort of the logical um, outflow from that. So, um, so, you know, again, these things are inextricably linked, but I think it's important not to take the stance that we've arrived at this moment through passive action. Or that, you know, the thing that we hear, you know, people dis decided that they want to live near each other, not near other types of people. It's important that we understand that it is deliberate governmental action at all levels, local, state and federal. And therefore, it's incumbent on the government to change that and disrupt that pattern. Um, and there are tools at our disposal to do that. Uh, and uh, for much of our history, we've been unwilling to use those tools. Um, to make sure that we, where we live and where we go to school reflects the broader diversity, um, the beautiful diversity of our, of our society at large. Yeah, I, I love that, that point you made uh, around the historical context and particularly around busing and how when we were busing with the end of segregation, 
There was no fuss about it, right? Black kids would drive well past white schools to get to black schools, and nobody was fussing about busing. People started fussing about busing when the end was integration. And so it was never really about busing. It was about maintaining segregated schools. Um, so you mentioned, I want to um, dig into a little bit. You mentioned that desegregation worked. Hit on that a little bit more, because I think that's a really important point for people. I think when you talk to uh, you know, a lot of people and you say, well, you know, school desegregation, oh, oh, do you mean busing? Yeah, 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 it's commonly referred to as that. They say, oh, well, that was a spectacular failure. Actually, the literature says something different. Um, so talk to us about that a little bit. Yes, and this is a very nuanced conversation, so I'll, I'll, I'll address it in a couple of different points. First, I also want to just make a couple of book recommendations um, along the way. So what we just talked about, the point you just made, Mike, about busing, and the way the word yeah. has sort of been framed and used and, le- and wielded, quite frankly, to maintain segregation over time is a really, really interesting case study. Matt Delmont has a great book called Why Busing Failed mm-hmm. that gets into that. I, re- I highly recommend it. On this question of like, did desegregation work? Uh, it's a big question that we need to unpack a little bit. What does work mean? Um, so there are a couple of different ways to look at this. And, and this is my second book recommendation. Uh, Rucker Johnson has a fantastic book looking at a whole host of outcomes um, for students who were in the South under mandatory court desegregation orders uh, in the 60s and 70s and um, comparing those outcomes for students who uh, were, not de- you know, were not part of desegregation. So it, it's pretty indisputable the evidence is indisputable that if you look at just academic outcomes for students who were part of mandatory desegregation, which happened all across the South and dramatically changed the landscape of public schools in the South, if you look at academic outcomes, desegregation boosted academic outcomes significantly, right? And so, yeah. and, and, and again, just to put it in some historical context, what we saw as a sort of broad trend is Brown happens in 54, these desegregation orders are put in place in the years thereafter. We see a dramatic desegregation happen in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Then what you have is courts releasing districts from mandatory desegregation orders, districts finding ways to get around them with uh, choice schemes and enabling certain families to participate in choice and others not to. Some court cases at the Supreme Court level, a Milliken being one of them, but many court cases that essentially hamstrung officials who were trying to continue the trend of promoting desegregation. And you saw the resegregation of America and, and yeah. you see it continuing in, in, to today. The, 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 the statistics are, so, are really staggering and sobering along lines of race and class. And again, we can talk about that. Uh, we can talk about that in a little bit, but back to this really, really important question around, did it work? Okay, so on the academic outcomes, pretty indisputable evidence, folks benefited tremendously. There's a sub story there within the era of desegregation. It's important not to paper over because I think it plays a lot into how people think about integration efforts today, which is from the standpoint of people of color, black folks primarily at the times who we're talking about, the era of desegregation had a number of unintended consequences as well. And maybe they were intended based on, you know, what vantage point you're looking at. Most of the time when you desegregated schools in the South, you either closed or abandoned the black school and the white school was a school that was integrated. There's documented cases of black teachers and black principals yeah. losing their jobs in the era of desegregation. So what do you have now? You have black students who no longer have role models in their communities that they looked up to. 
Black students who in many cases in the South are now entering host actively hostile learning environments, either from students, teachers, parents. And we all know now, uh, and it's well documented, how important the social emotional aspects of school are and, and what bigger role they play in uh, a student's academics. And so part of what I would argue is there's a big part of desegregation that we actually got wrong. We didn't, we didn't pay attention to issues of inclusion, belonging, representation, curriculum. You know, there's, Du Bois is big, and this was you know, many decades before desegregation, Du Bois's big worry about integration. Uh, he wrote about this extensively in the 1920s and, and 30s. Du Bois's big issue was, um, what were these children going to be taught in these schools led by white teachers and white principals about their own history and their own people and who they were? Uh, because at the time, you know, misinformation about um, African history and African-American history was rampant in white schools. And so that was a big concern. So the thing that I will often argue is that the academic gains are indisputable. There's a question at what social costs they came. But had we attended to those issues in the 60s and those other issues, right. 60s and 70s, we could have seen exponentially greater outcomes for students, uh, uh, black students in particular. And that 2021 should be different and is different. When we talk about integration in 2021, we have to talk about it holistically and make sure we, we attend to all of the important variables. And that's, that's an important piece. And, and I'll come back to it. And I keep harping on it because there are skeptics of integration today. But I think by and large, the folks are skeptical, are skeptical because of the ways in which we didn't right. do every, handle all of our business in the 60s and 70s. And I think there's a different way to do it. Um, so, so uh, obviously something I'm very passionate about, but I'll, I'll leave it at that because I think that that is important not to paint a sort of broad brush that just desegregation was a blanket success. Uh, it was certainly in many regards, there were also a lot of issues that I think we've learned from. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that uh, really nuanced take. And uh, just for folks, um, for their record, the, the book that uh, Stefan is, is uh, recommending, Rucker Johnson, it's called, the, I think it's called The Children of the Dream. Um, very, very good book. Uh, check it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a really important point. I, the way I've heard it um, said said before is it's, it's not enough to just get the body count right, that it matters what happens within the school walls, you know, in terms of inclusion. Um, and uh, a really, really important point. So you kind of walked us through the, the history here and we've arrived at today and you were alluding to some of these statistics around kind of what, what uh, the current landscape is today. Um, so walk us through that. I mean, how, how, what is the lay of the land right now? How segregated are we still? Um, great question. I think it's, it's really important um, to dig into the, into the nuance here. So let's just start with housing. And this is something I know you know tons about. And so you can also feel free to chime in and, 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 and add to this. But if we look at measures of residential segregation over the last 30, 40 years, if we look at race specifically, there's actually something to be celebrated, which is that racial segregation in housing has actually decreased over the last 30, 40 years. It's one of the few bright spots. And we can point to a number of different you know, reasons that is. And, and, and one, of, one of them is um, gentrification uh, is happening. We have a lot more um, whites moving into urban cores than we have in the last 30, 40 years. Um, there is the diversification of suburbs. So suburbs look dramatically different uh, in 2021 than they did in 1950 and 1960. It's one of the reasons a lot of people think Donald Trump's sort of, you know, whatever you think about Donald right. Trump, but Donald Trump's uh, appeal to 
um, you know, the, the, the white suburban house mom and the dangers of what would happen if the suburbs uh, diversified. Right. Most people looked around and said, my suburb is already diverse and, you know, things are fine. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, so I think that's important to note is that racial segregation in housing has actually gone down. Now, um, income-based segregation has not. Uh, and income-based segregation has actually gotten worse. And so we're le you're less likely than ever, if you're an American who is in the upper middle class or upper class, you're less likely than ever to live around people who are of a different um, social class than you are. And same pertains if you're a low-income American, you most likely live around other low-income Americans. And so our residential housing landscape is highly segregated by class, which is, which is very, very problematic. One other quick wrinkle that I'll throw in that is things look substantially different for African-Americans than they do for other uh, uh, populations of color, which is that you are much more likely if you're an African-American to live uh, residentially, to live in a low income area, regardless of what your income is, than any other group, than white right. people, than, uh, you know, Latino Americans and Indian Americans. So, um, so, so there's something there that we need to sort of further uncover as it pertains to Black Americans, which seems to, as a Black American myself, seems to always be the story, right? Like, um, you know, we're, we're sort of always getting the short end of, of the stick in that way. On education, um, the same story cannot be told in that there has not been over the last 20, 30 years a, an improvement uh, by race or by class. We are getting more segregated by race and by class in our schools um, in, in, at this point than any point in the last 20, 30 years. In some parts of the country, it rivals what existed uh, right after Brown v. Board. And so that is a completely unacceptable status quo um, the sort of to, to, to give some very high level statistics, about one fifth of the public schools in America have 90 to 100 percent white students that make up their student body. And another fifth have 90 to 100 percent either black or Latinx students that make up their student body. So we're talking about almost 40 percent of American public schools today in 2021 that are highly segregated by race. I mean, it, it's just sort of it's, it's head scratching. And I often, you mentioned my grandfather at the very beginning. Yeah. I often wonder, he, he, you know, he passed uh, two decades ago, but I wonder like, what would he think if he heard that? I was going to ask you that. What yeah. would he, what do you think he'd think? I, it would be very, very disheartening to him as somebody who, um, when he was traveling to DC uh, to participate in Supreme Court cases, himself had to stay in segregated hotels because he wasn't allowed in certain hotels by law. Uh, I think it would be very disheartening for him to know six decades after this is supposedly a settled issue, we have this extreme segregation um, uh, by school. And so, you know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know what he would think other than to, to, to be extremely disappointed. Uh, but, it, but I would love to get his um, intellect and legal advice on, on where we go from here, um, something, something I sorely miss. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you sort of uh, alluded to this of like, I mean, what gives? There, there are no laws anymore that say this is a white school and this is a black school. So what are the, what are the uh, primary barriers as you see them? Sure. So, um, I mean, on the housing front, first of all, uh, and Sam alluded to a lot of these things in the beginning. On the housing front, there are a number of things uh, that can be done. One of the things that I think people is getting a little bit more attention, but people don't pay tons of attention to is the ways in which um, zoning laws uh, prevent 
residential integration from taking root in that um, in my neighborhood here, I live in, in Northwest Baltimore, my neighborhood here, um, uh, we've got a house on, you know, a plot of land. And if I wanted to build another unit or maybe convert my garage into, you know, suitable living space that could be rented out at an affordable rate, I couldn't do it uh, because the zoning laws prevent me from doing it. And there's zoning laws all across the country that require, you know, only permit single family homes. Uh, and what that does is it drives prices up, makes housing unaffordable. It reduces the overall housing stock and it makes it so that if you're an upper income American, you don't live around people um, who, who, who would be paying market rate or have any kind of uh, opportunity to get into affordable housing. They just don't live around you. So there's some serious reform that we need to do on the housing front. And, you know, again, I could go, go on a tangent and go, go on this for hours. But when we look at the origin of zoning laws in the 20s and 30s, they were started specifically to keep people out. There were you know, outgrowths of racial covenants that existed in, in, in um, housing, local housing laws all across the country. And, uh, and, and the reason that they started and they took off like wildfire all across the United States was um, to keep people segregated by income. And, and at that time, most often income is a proxy for race. So, so there's a number of things that can be done on that front. I mean, on the education front, which is where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm better versed in, in the education front. And because of the work we're doing at the Bridges Cloud, we've got partners all across the country um, who have addressed this issue just because things are, you know, it's a bleak landscape in the housing uh, sector in terms of trying to promote integration doesn't mean there are things that cannot be done in education. There are plenty of things that can be done in education. So the first thing is, you know, we have a number of um, urban areas in particular, places across the country that have sort of unmoored where you live from where you attend school. Okay, so uh, in New Orleans, for example, and I'll come back to New Orleans, because I think it's not a model of integration by any means, it's quite the opposite. But in New Orleans, after Katrina, which is where I spent most of my career, where you live no longer dictated where you went to school, everybody filled out a lottery, you could attend school anywhere in the city. And so you would think theoretically that if you had a choice system in the public domain, that that by itself would get rid of segregation, but it did not. And the key lesson here is that choice has the, has the potential to disrupt patterns of segregation, but it requires additional guardrails uh, in order to ensure that integration actually takes root. So New Orleans is a good example of we implemented choice with no guardrails, segregation persisted. Um, schools in New York, for example, that have entered into, uh, you know, that have created, uh, District 15 is a great example, that have created um, district-wide admission structures that put in guardrails specifically, for example, giving priority to students who are uh, students with disabilities, low-income English language learners, setting aside a priority percentage has in District 15 from one year to the next ensured that all of their middle schools um, uh, reflect the beautiful diversity of their district. And that wasn't the case uh, just before they implemented that policy. So, so choice combined with priorities and guardrails can overcome the obstacle of, uh, you know, the, the residential segregation leading to, to, to school segregation. And then, you know, Mike, you know, I, I love touting Dallas. You should talk about this because in many ways, you're the architect of what, what happened in Dallas. But school districts 
getting innovative around starting new schools or school turnaround models, uh, where again, um, your chance at getting into one of these schools isn't dictated by where you live. Uh, and, and moreover, you're being very systematic about the enrollment sure that when you actually open those doors, you've got a beautiful mix um, socioeconomically, racially, a beautiful, you know, diversity of students who get to, to get to enter the school, the school door. So, um, so there are a lot of really neat things that are happening. Those are, you know, those are just two examples. Um, but my message to educators always is, yes, we got to work on the housing stuff and we should work hand in hand with housing folks, but we can't just throw our hands up in the air. There are plenty of things that we can do right. Right. in the realm of education to address this issue. Yeah. And really, in the big scheme of things, we need to be working on both fronts at the same time concurrently um, to try to integrate, you know, uh, housing as much as possible and integrate schools as much as possible. And it requires, you know, uh, housers and, and educators to be on the same page. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you brought up Dallas. I mean, you know, we would essentially reserve seats uh, based on income and make sure that we could engineer uh, a diverse uh, student body. And so we would reserve, you know, X percentage of seats for kids not eligible for free and reduced lunch, X percentage of seats for kids on free and reduced lunch. And then within that bucket, we would have sort of tiers of, of poverty. Um, and we would just try to, you know, make sure that, that we were engineering uh, a, an integrated school. Um, and what, what I was essentially doing as a school district official was I was trying to bypass segregated housing patterns. And I remember I was talking to a school board member about these uh, enrollment policies that we were creating. And this was very different than anything that the district had done in the past. And the school board uh, member was like, this is really complicated. You got the X number of seats for this and X number of seats for that. And this kid's coming from here. Why you got to be so complicated? And I said, well, because we're, we're bypassing segregated housing patterns. If, if you want an integrated student body here, um, which I know that we share that goal, this is how creative you have to get because uh, there hasn't been much progress on the, on the housing segregation front. So we're going to have to get more creative as a school district. If, if, if our neighborhoods were integrated, then I wouldn't have to get that creative uh, with our enrollment policies. But, but unfortunately, that is, that is, the, uh, that is the case. Um, so let's, um, let's talk about... like. Why is school integration something that people should care about? Like, like, what does it matter if a school is 100% kids in poverty or 0% kids in poverty? Just teach whoever walks in the building. What's the big deal about having an integrated student body? Why is it, why is it so important that we have to, you know, basically reverse engineer our way out of this problem? Yeah, I mean, and I like the, 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 use of the word reverse engineer, because it really is reverse engineering decades of, you know, government sanctioned segregation. It's not social engineering, anything new. It's trying to get us out of the mess that we put, put ourselves in. There's a, there's a, so many different reasons why we should care about this issue and why we should strive for it. Perhaps the first of which, you know, I, I'm a parent. I know you're a parent. We care most about uh, our kids' education it's very, very clear that when integration is done well, it benefits all students, yep. benefits accrue to all students. It doesn't matter. You know, my child's a, a, an African-American child, your child. I don't actually know. Uh, I shouldn't make, make any assumptions. No matter what race or background your child comes from, Mike. Yeah, my kids are white. Your kids are white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know your significant other, so I can't make, yeah, any, no, she's make white. any assumptions. Um but it benefits both of our children. Uh, and yeah. so, and, yep. and the benefits accrue um, to academics, they accrue to, you know, social outcomes, to long-term outcomes. 
Um, and, and, and I'll talk about those in just a second. But I think the other thing is, and I think this is becoming blatantly obvious to, to all of us who pay attention to anything that's happening nationally, which is um, that the state of our politics are so divided um, and they're divided along lines, you know, along lines of, um, of, of race and of class. If you, if you sort of look at the way things are going and it begs the question that if we had folks and leaders in Washington and, and, and folks in our country, if folks had actually gone to school together, right, built relationships with people across lines of difference, uh, meaningful relationships, would we be in this place that we are now that is so divided and so divisive? And I think the answer is clearly no. Uh, and the research will back this up. So, um, it, you know, you're so much likelier to build uh, strong, lasting, lifelong relationships with people across racial lines if you had early formative experiences uh, in diverse settings. You're much less likely to harbor bias and prejudice uh, if you had some of those early formative experiences um, and then um, academically speaking, and this is particularly for low-income students, but it's important to note middle and upper-income students aren't harmed at all by being in diverse settings. But for low-income students, the academic outcomes are just, uh, you know, it's indisputable that it's so much more advantageous for you to be part of a heterogeneous learning environment um, than to attend a school in concentrations of poverty. And this doesn't matter whether we throw, you know, thousands of additional dollars uh, your way if you're in a high poverty school. Mm -hmm. There are just things about concentrations of poverty, we can talk about what those things are, that um, uh, make it much more difficult to achieve the levels of success socially and academically that you would in a much, much more mixed environment. So th there's, Mike, there's so many reasons why we should support this. And I think the, the, the sort of headline about why we often don't is People have written this off politically as an achievable thing is number one. And we've shown today that it's not. Uh, you can talk about this as a political leader and, and make some, some movement on it. Um, and, and number two, people just sort of misunderstand the status quo and where we are and think that if we just throw more money at the issues uh, that we can that we can move forward. And I think nothing could be further further from the truth. But I'm curious to hear from you and, and Mike and, and from you, Sam, like, you know, everybody has their reasons, right? Mine is. I, uh, as I've sort of stated here, I want my kid to have the best education possible. And I think the best education possible is for her to be exposed to kids of many different backgrounds. And um, I just think the way we do things from a policy standpoint makes no sense to have to create two different kinds of school systems. But I'm curious to hear from you gentlemen. I mean, what, what, are, what are the reasons that you think, uh, you know, we should wholeheartedly support uh, a movement to integrate our schools? So I think for me, it comes back to this idea of a shared social fabric. I think this was inherent in Brown versus Board of Education and in the civil rights movement and movements around the world, but we've gotten away from it a little bit because the laws technically now are colorblind. And what this is, what it, what it is fundamentally at its core is that when you have different groups in a society, whether that's race or class, and then those groups have fundamentally different experiences, whether it's the different neighborhoods that they live in or the different schools that they go to. When we start to decide that what's good for me is different than what's good for you, I think that just rips that social fabric apart and the costs are immense. The other thing that, that I'll bring up, and I think this is really important, is 
going back uh, to the uh, Gordon Alport, um, Nature of Prejudice, 1954, talking about what, what you know, integration should look like and, and how it yields these positive pro-social outcomes. It's not just putting people in the same room in the same school. Um, he, he identified the specific conditions required for these relationships to yield improved interpersonal outcomes. And one of the most important ones is equal status. And so if you, uh, this, is, this is why it's important to pay attention to the dynamics that exist within schools. Um, you know, when you have schools that are technically uh, desegregated, but you look at who's in the honors classes uh, and they're, you know, equally stratified, that's, that's not creating a, 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 you know, a environment in which people are, is, is truly integrated. Integrated is about the relationships that are formed between people and whether or not, um, they're actually on equal footing. So I think it's, it's really important to pay attention to that too. Yeah. Well, well said. I mean, I, I, you know, I think I approach it, you know, as a parent and, and somebody who's looked at the research, I mean, fr from a research perspective, I think the one thing that, that I would say is it's, you know, integration is, it's one of the highest leverage things that we can do among a universe of other possible interventions. Right. Um, it's not just like, a good thing to do among many other good things to do. It's one of the most potent things you can do. It's one of the most powerful interventions you can do. Um, way back when we started doing this podcast, we talked to Heather Schwartz from, uh, who, who looked at uh, uh, the Montgomery County study, one of the most influential studies ever done in this space, and looked at Montgomery County and, um, you know, basically a nice randomized experiment was set up and there was, you know, high poverty schools that were getting more money pure pupil and then there were integrated schools that weren't getting as much money for people. And it, it, the, the power was in the integrated schools. That's really where you saw the most progress happen. So, you know, when you're in the education world, there's lots of people that talk about, um, you know, the different possible interventions that can be done. And there's a million of them to choose from, right? There's, there's curriculum type things. There's instructional type things. There's funding type things. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. But to me, integration is uh, among the most powerful interventions that you could possibly uh, due to improve student achievement and the research bears that out. And then just, you know, as, as a parent, um, you know, I, I think of my kids as, as adults and what kind of adult I want them to be. And I think they would just be terribly uh, ill-equipped for the world if they didn't have exposure to people of different races and classes as an adult. And I, you know, you, you run into those people today, you see them on your television screen every day spouting nonsense. And you just wonder whether they have ever had any meaningful interactions with the people they vilify. Right. Um, and it, it, likely not, um, I, because I think it's, um, you know, it, it's easy to criticize what you can't understand. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Bob Dylan there, but right, you it, it just it, it's harder to, to do. It's, it's harder to vilify people. It's, it's harder to other people um, when, when you've gotten to know them. Um, and I think that that's really, really important. And I think in addition to all the powerful, you know, academic outcomes, uh, there's a tremendous like body politic reason. Uh, to try to promote integration on the housing front and the education front. Um, so that, uh, Stefan, I want to ask you about the, the Bridges Collaborative. You've, you've uh, alluded to it. Um, I want to give you a little bit of time to just kind of explain, like, what, what was the impetus behind this? Um, what's kind of your plan? What are you doing with these school districts? Just kind of talk us through what you're doing, because it, it, it's very, very cool what you all have done. Sure thing. Yeah, really excited about the project. We launched it um, in earnest a little under a year ago, last October. So the idea here was, um, look, there are folks all across the country who care about this issue and, um, you know, want to 
be in community with other people and learn from other people who are trying to advance this agenda. Um, and they don't really have a place to, to come together. So uh, that's not to say that there aren't tons of great people and organizations across the country um, who care about integration. There are. They just don't happen to be focused on practitioners. They're typically focused on, you know, lobbying for better policies or, uh, you know, working in the advocacy space, which are all really, really important. But, yeah. you know, my question sort of was, look, if I'm a director of enrollment of a school district somewhere in the Midwest and I want to lobby for some changes to our enrollment policies to make our student body a little bit more integrated, who do I go to? Yeah. Um, and so that was the that was the inspiration. Um, for starting the collaborative. And so what we did last summer is we basically put out an all call and I kind of hit the road, if you will, the, the Zoom road, Zoom road. <laughs> metaphorical road. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, talked to folks all across the country who I knew uh, or who folks had connected me with who in in this issue and just A, to learn more about what's going on out there, but also B, to just say, look, we're starting this thing. We'd love to have you, a small team of folks from your organization, take part in this. And we were overwhelmed. We got, you know, um, dozens and dozens of applications. We put out an application. I mean, folks took time to, took hours to fill out applications to say why they wanted to be part of the integration initiative, which quite frankly, Mike, I think 10, 20 years ago, I I wouldn't have, wouldn't have imagined. I just don't think we would have gotten any responses there. Um, So we ended up selecting 57 organizations and this included districts, charter schools, and housing organizations. So again, we saw very clearly the link between districts, uh, uh, school districts and, and housing. Um, and we also wanted to be somewhat form agnostic. We know there are a lot of you know, feelings out there about charter schools, but our take was if you're committed to this issue, uh, you have something to bring to the table and we can learn from it. Right. And, um, and that's really been borne out by our experience. We have round tables around topics with charter leaders and district leaders sitting shoulder to shoulder not never mentioning the sort of charter district issue and instead rolling their sleeves up and learning from one another about some really innovative things that they're each doing. So um, it's been really, really heartening from, from that standpoint. And basically what we've asked is for these organizations to send teams of between three and five individuals um, and uh, to um, basically take part in a two year cohort process where we, learn from one another, learn about best practices that are, that are out there, learn about innovative practices, learn from experts, hear about research, but sort of break it down in ways that are friendly to practitioners. You know, we know we talk a lot about education research and uh, how difficult it can, how difficult of a nut it can be to crack if you're a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that's where the Bridges Collaborative was born. And those are the kinds of things that we're up to. Yeah, it's, it's super, super exciting to see that that many uh, organizations really invested in, in this uh, issue. It's really encouraging. Um, and it's changed so much in the past even couple of years. I mean, I, even when I, when I was doing this back in whatever it was, it felt like we were sort of a, an island uh, doing, doing something that, you know, maybe, maybe nobody would notice that we're doing this kind of thing. But now it's, it's really, uh, I think it's really elevated in the, in the national conversation, which is great. Uh, before we wrap up, the last, uh, last topic I want to hit on was um, this survey that, that we just did. And Sam, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to, to talk through it. But uh, we just did a survey of uh, many uh, of these uh, school districts that are participating in the Bridges Collaborative. So Sam, kind of set the stage for us. What we, what we collaborated uh, with on the survey was with Stefan. And, and what do we do there and kind of set it up for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've talked about this at length, um, but, you know, there's this inextricable link between education and housing. 
Um, you know, but from the opportunity starts at home perspective, you know, we work with all these different organizations across the country that have committed to kind of um, stepping outside their normal sphere of influence and thinking about housing. Um, but as we, we wanted to kind of complement the experience of the campaign, which really does take this bird's eye view, really operating at the federal level, and just ask people on the ground in these districts across the country, um, you know, about their perception of the connection between education and housing. And as Stefan mentioned, you have all these, these districts that have kind of taken this on um, and, and raised their hand and said, this is something that, that we are thinking about. So we, we figured they'd be a really good group to talk about. Um, and one, one testament to Stefan's leadership is the, uh, the response rate for the survey is higher than any that I've, uh, I've ever uh, come across in surveys that I've, I've uh, sent out. So we, we greatly appreciated his leadership on that. But so you have this survey and we basically asked them, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about the way that housing influences um, educational outcomes in your district. What are some of the challenges that students are facing? Um, how does that influence the work that you do as educators? And then we also asked them about, uh, you know, policies uh, that would benefit low-income households, how that might influence, uh, you know, their work in their districts. And so what we found is that um, as the research would indicate, you know, regardless of whether these are low poverty, moderate poverty, high poverty districts, all over the country, students are facing housing challenges that really undermines their academic achievement, whether it's absences or, um, you know, forced moves like evictions uh, or families struggling to pay the rent and that, that, that undermining the, the student's academic achievement and really strong support like nine in 10 respondents saying, you know, these policies that would benefit low-income households would really benefit the educational outcomes in our district. Um, and so that was very heartening and also, um, you know, a call to action, I think, in terms of pursuing these, these housing policies that are, you know, uh, you know, the Biden administration has put out there, you know, that you have bipartisan support for a lot of these, whether it's um, housing vouchers or, um, you know, improving, the, you know, increasing uh, funding for the housing trust fund, um, in, uh, repairing public housing that is, you know, these repairs have been put off for decades. So I think that that, you know, uh, when Mike at the beginning said education advocates or housing advocates, I think that really is borne out in this survey. Yeah, it was really fascinating. Um, you know, the overwhelming majority of, of the school districts that, that we surveyed indicated that, yeah, the policies that would improve housing affordability and stability would improve academic outcomes in their schools. So you have educators saying, yes, you know, this, this will improve uh, academic outcomes. So they're, they're drawing that connection. And I think, you know, um, you know, we're not uh, asking educators to become housing policy experts, right? I mean, that's not what this is about. This isn't about housing advocates becoming education experts and education advocates becoming housing experts, right? I mean, I've, I've been in the housing world for a little bit now, and there's still so much uh, for me to learn. I'm not a housing policy expert yet. Um, but, but I think that what we're trying to do is get housers and educators together and talking to each other on a more formal and, and regular basis um, because our fates are intertwined with each other and, and build those relationships of trust and weigh in on each other's issues. And we'll, we'll figure out, you know, the, the policy details and all the, all the nitty gritty stuff. But the most important thing is that we break down our silos and that we start to have regular conversations with each other. And that's precisely what the Bridges Collaborative is doing. That's what we're trying to do through Opportunity Starts at Home. Because in the big picture, um, we know that, uh, you know, we, housers can't achieve their goals without educators and educators can't achieve their goals without housers. We need each other to do this work. Um, 
so certainly there, there's this growing recognition um, that that we need each other, which which is great. So I'll end with uh, kind of a last question for for the both of you, um, which is just uh, on the kind of the federal policymaker front. That uh, you know our our campaign is pushing on Congress to you know try to uh, enact uh, more robust and more equitable uh, federal uh, policy. So I mean, what's something that you would like federal policymakers to know? Um, about kind of the nexus of, of housing and education? What's the one or two things that, that you'd say to them? Happy to start on this one. I mean, I think, you know, part of what we're all about, as you said, is promoting greater collaboration between uh, housing and education. And, you know, there, there is not a bunch of coherent policy around where schools are cited in relation to what types of housing is around them. So, I'd love right. to see, uh, you know, incentives at the federal level of which there are many in the world of housing, right? Um, but incentives to build affordable housing um, can also be made even sweeter uh, by folks who choose to build affordable housing in, play, in school districts specifically that would increase the socioeconomic hmm. diversity um, of, of those yeah. school districts. That's and so yeah. um, just an example of a way we can sort of link housing policy and school policy, and it, it just makes sense. I mean, uh, it doesn't really make sense for us to make these decisions in isolation of one another. And so why not incentivize localities through, you know, federal dollars um, uh, to make decisions that will increase segregation, uh, increase integration rather than increase right. segregation. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Sam, any thoughts? Yeah, I think I'll just um, take the opportunity to plug uh, legislation that's already in, uh, that's already been introduced, bipartisan um, Van Hollen and Young Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act. Uh, this is uh, legislation that provides vouchers and uh, really importantly also counseling uh, for families with young children uh, in order to move to uh, low poverty neighborhoods. The research here is extremely strong. Um, we did an interview with uh, Dr. Stephanie DeLuca from also a Baltimore uh, resident like Stefan, um, who's at Hopkins. Um, is really interesting research that people should check out, but these are very popular bipartisan uh, policies. Uh, everybody agrees that families should be able to move to the neighborhoods where they feel like they want to raise their children and provide them with, you know, safe, uh, you know, safe neighborhoods, great schools, and uh, and this is a, is a no-brainer. So I'll, I'll just plug that. Um, we've done a bunch of writing about that on the Opportunity Starts at Home uh, campaign website and, and and talk to a bunch of people that are invested in that policy. So I'll just highlight that here. Yep. And again, bipartisan support on that one. Um, so great. This this was great. Uh, I loved, loved having this conversation. Uh, Stefan, where, where can folks go to learn more about Bridges? Everybody knows where they can go to uh, learn more about Opportunity Starts at Home, but where can they go to learn more about uh, Bridges Collaborative? Absolutely. So www.tcf.org, uh, it stands for the Century Foundation. We're an initiative housed uh, in the Century Foundation. And there's a link to the Bridges Collaborative there. Folks can also feel free to just email me. Uh, you know, love having conversations. It's lallinger at tcf.org. Um, but uh, really appreciate this opportunity, Mike, and love the work you're doing with Opportunity Starts at Home. So thanks for having me on today. Yeah, likewise, mutual admiration for, for your work as well. And uh, so thanks for thanks for uh, doing this. And Sam, thanks for all your hard work and going through the research for us and uh, really spearheading the, the survey that we talked about. So Sam's been an indispensable part of our work on this. So uh, thanks both for joining. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk next time. Thanks again. <laughs>